as I discussed with Peter Gammons, during the year 2001, 2002, 2003, I experimented with a banned substance that eventually triggered a positive test. It was February 17, 2009, just eight days after Alex Rodriguez's interview with Peter Gammons to discuss his failed steroid test from the 2003 season. It had been eight days of criticism, eye rolls, of people dismissing Alex's explanation and calling him a cheater. Now he was in Tampa, Florida for the start of spring training, but more importantly, gearing up to face the media again in the aftermath of the steroid news. He gave a long, winding speech where he mostly repeated the points he'd told Gammons. He took drugs during his years with the Texas Rangers. He didn't know exactly what he was taking or how to take it. It was a loosey-goosey time. And once he realized how serious performance-enhancing drugs really were, he stopped. That was his story, and that was the gist of the statement. But the real takeaway moment came at the end of his monologue. Like everyone else, I've made a lot of mistakes in my life. The only way I know how to handle them is to learn from them and move forward. One thing I know is for sure, that baseball is a lot bigger than Alex Rodriguez. And to my teammates, Thank you. We actually had to edit that clip because in reality, he sat there for 37 seconds in silence. And I really want to narrate what is happening in the video for those 37 seconds. First, he kind of smiles and turns toward where his teammates are sitting. Then he kind of smirks to himself and leans back in his chair. Then he turns his head down to the floor like he's looking for something, but he doesn't actually reach for anything. He just bites his lower lip and then turns back with this very somber expression on his face. Then, and we're still only 20 seconds in, by the way, about halfway through, he reaches for his water bottle and he takes a drink. Then he twists his mouth like he's lost in thought for a good 10 seconds, turns back to his teammates, and finally, mercifully, quietly lets out, thank you. James, what do you make of what is happening here? Well, it's weird because he is reading from a script during the monologue portion, and he is just like visibly uncomfortable being scripted. And like, you know, it seems like he didn't actually write it. Some of the like reading of it is clunky. He seems to like literally struggle turning the pages and stuff. And then, you know, he just like seemingly spontaneously kind of wants to take a moment to address his teammates or feels like he should or something. And then just like, is just like the most uncomfortable person on planet earth that I've ever seen. Yeah. What it, what it looks to me is like, he's trying to summon, um, like he knows he's supposed to say thank you to his teammates in like an emotional voice. And so he's trying to like summon the emotions, but like it, he can't, do it and he doesn't really know and so he's like going through this pantomiming of like a struggle it's just very weird and uncomfortable and i don't know sort of fascinating in a weird way yeah he's like sort of acknowledging that they had to go to this press conference but like doesn't want to like debase them with like a what will certainly read as a phony apology so yeah and he just sort of thanks them but like with this quiet like you know what i mean guys you know like i don't know there's a weird like attempt at intimacy or vulnerability but it's hard not to read it as phony yeah and the other thing about this press conference it 
had the first mention of A-Rod's cousin, who supposedly introduced him to the drug he took. And I remember the cousin being a huge part of lore in 2009. He was this mysterious figure. Alex doesn't even use his name. And they were supposedly doing this mysterious drug called Bali or Bole. A-Rod couldn't even commit to one pronunciation. Yeah, the drug Rodriguez tested positive for was called Primobolin, but he only identified it by its supposed street name in the Dominican Republic. ESPN actually ran a story a couple days later where they talked to Don Catlin, a doctor who frequently is quoted in stories about sports doping scandals. And Catlin was like, I've never heard of this nickname. I don't know what he's talking about. It all just contributed to the narrative that A-Rod was being a little disingenuous, even in his supposed confession. Of course, as we talked about in Chapter 6, this is kind of following the standard playbook around steroids. Someone close to A-Rod gave him some strange substance that was supposed to give him a, quote, energy boost, but he didn't know how it worked or what the dangers behind it were. At the time, it seemed a little like Alex was throwing his cousin under the bus, even as he himself was supposedly taking responsibility. And the cousin, named Yuri Sukart, would be banned from all Major League Baseball stadiums and facilities as a result. Although he will still find a way to pop up again in our story. The point was to make steroids look like something that was behind both Alex and the league, like a youthful indiscretion that should embarrass A-Rod, but which was comfortably in the past. It was a personal failing, not a systemic problem. That was the league story, and A-Rod was willing to go along with it, as long as it opened up the possibility of redemption. I'm John. I'm James. We're the Lefty Specialists. And this is the A-Rod Chronicles. Chapter 7, A New Man. Before we get to the redemption of A-Rod, we have to talk a little bit about the 2008 season. That was A-Rod's first under his new contract and his last before his positive steroid test became public. And it's really important to get where he was when those steroid allegations came out. 2008 was a transitional year for both him and the Yankees. On the field, Alex put up his usual numbers. Not quite MVP worthy, but he was the best hitter on the team. He hit 302 with 35 home runs, and he led the league in slugging percentage. But around him, there were all kinds of changes. For one, Joe Torre, the longtime Yankee manager, was gone. He'd rejected a one-year contract extension from the Steinbrenners, calling it insulting, and left for the LA Dodgers. The new manager was Joe Girardi, a former Yankee catcher who was only 11 years older than Alex. It was also the last year in the team's longtime home, the old Yankee Stadium, which had stood since 1923. And there were major changes in the Yankee pitching staff as they turned to three young guys, Phil Hughes, Ian Kennedy, and Jabba Chamberlain, with pretty disappointing results. The young pitching, combined with the aging rest of the roster, meant that the Yankees missed the playoffs for the first time since Alex had come into the league. And off the field, things were even worse for A-Rod. At this point, A-Rod had been the most famous baseball player in the world for close to a decade. But by 2008, A-Rod had reached a new height as a media spectacle and tabloid fixture. A-Rod had been married to Cynthia Skirtis since 2002, and the couple welcomed their second daughter in April of 2008. And if you're thinking I'm bringing up his marriage for good reasons, I have unfortunate news. The prior year, in 2007, the New York Post had featured on its cover paparazzi images of A-Rod leaving a strip club with a dancer who honestly looked strikingly like his wife, 
and what was sort of a warning shot for what was to come. Then, in the 2007 offseason, in an effort to find inner peace and potentially heal from the turmoil of the Tory-era postseasons, A-Rod spent quite a bit of time at the Manhattan Kabbalah Center. Kabbalah, or Kabbalah, as the media often calls it, we're not really sure on the pronunciation. I, I asked a couple of my observant Jewish friends, and I, I think Kabbalah is, is correct, but uh, Kabbalah is, is what you'll hear more commonly. But anyway, Kabbalah is an ancient Jewish tradition and discipline associated with magic and mysticism, but most people know it because of celebrity followers like Ashton Kutcher, Demi Moore, and of course, Madonna. It is sometimes accused of being one of these fads, so like a, a wellness thing, sort of like a proto-goop sort yeah. of Yeah, or arguably a cult, yeah. Yeah, uh, but you know, it is a long-standing religious it has long yeah i don't want to i don't accuse any kabbalah followers in our listeners of of, of being cult members sorry predictably once a rod started showing up at the manhattan kabbalah center the new york papers were not super chill about all this and before long started reporting on madonna and a rod's apparent new friendship then in july 2008 just three months after a rod's daughter ella was born cynthia rodriguez filed for divorce saying that he had emotionally abandoned both her and their children. Over the next two months, an onslaught of headlines accused Madonna of brainwashing Alex and accused their relationship of ending his marriage. There were also a bunch of tawdry bits about Madonna entering the Yankees locker room when she wasn't supposed to and allusions to various like nightclubs that they hung out at and stuff like that. Yeah, I think the... The Madonna thing like was weird and it's weird to go back to because I, I think a lot of people probably remember it as like a an affair that A-Rod had with Madonna allegedly, although I think they still both deny that it was a romantic thing, which was especially weird because Madonna's like 17 years older than Alex. And so that obviously led to a lot of speculation. Um, yeah, she was 50 in 2008. Yeah. And so that coupled with the photos that had leaked of him at the strip club led to this idea that A-Rod was cheating on his wife and that that's why she filed for divorce. But if you actually read the divorce filing, it's like way weirder than that. As James says, it's like mainly focused on the religious stuff and the Kabbalah stuff and the way that he had, quote, emotionally abandoned the family. Um, and so it seems like in the stuff with Madonna wasn't so much that they were having an affair, but that she was supposedly brainwashing him into this weird uh, religious tradition that Cynthia did not approve of. The whole thing was just so strange. And so but like fans brought pictures of Madonna to stadiums to like taunt Alex with. And it was all very uh, tawdry, essentially. The Lefty Specialist podcast, to be clear, rejects the notion that Kabbalah practitioners are trying to brainwash you. (laughs) All due respect. By the time the steroid stuff broke, Alex was already damaged goods. He was already in a very negative place. It wasn't just that his reputation as a baseball player was damaged. He was also seen as something of a joke, a tabloid punching bag, a divorced dad, you know, that kind of thing. And that spring in 2009, there was a Details magazine story on him with an accompanying photo of him kissing his own reflection as if he was helpfully trying to illustrate for everybody just how self-involved he actually was. (laughs) Something I learned during the research for this podcast is that, James, the Details photo shoot, that was done like the day the steroid story came out. 
So there are quotes from the photographer and stuff that A-Rod was just like shockingly relaxed as they were doing it. It was sort of like he had given up any hope of salvaging his reputation, which like in a weird way explains something I've never quite understood. Like, why did he pose for that photo of him? Like, kiss it? like even A-Rod must know that that's not a flattering thing to like kiss your own reflection. Like people will still make fun of that photo. But now I kind of think like, oh, he was just in a place where he was like, how could this get any worse? I might as well do what the photographer is asking. It's Yeah, like watching that press conference video and like, you know, uh, learning about the the Madonna friendship and, and stuff. It seems like he was just like trying stuff, you know? Yeah, it's just like, just who knows? Like he's somebody who's like lost control of the plot of his own life in a sad kind of way. Um, like, sure, I'll do this photo shoot. Yeah, whatever. why not? Yeah, who cares? Alex, has this been a nightmare uh, winter for you? This has been tough. I mean, I alluded in my press conference the last 14 or 15 months has been probably the most difficult. No, they have been the most difficult of my life. And, you know, I think with that, there's an opportunity to grow and, uh, you know, again, make yourself uh, a better person and hopefully a better player, too. What do you say to guys like me and fans that were disappointed in what you did? Well, number one, that I, I'm very sorry, you know. Um, I know there's kids out there that I've never met before, and I never, I probably never will, that I've hurt them, and for that I'm very sorry. And, and you know this, Mike, I'm not very good with words, but no matter what I sit here and tell you today, uh, it's not going to express how truly sorry I feel for what I've done. On the field, 2009 was a strange time as well. That offseason, after the first postseason the Yankees had missed since 1993, the team went out and committed roughly half a billion dollars in new free agents, signing CeCe Sabathia, Mark Teixeira, and A.J. Burnett. In some ways, the team was turning over a new leaf from A-Rod. He was no longer the biggest star on the Yankees. Uh, was he? I don't know. I, yeah, I, like, you know, you could argue either way between, like, Jeter and A-Rod. That was always true. I mean, that was true from 2004 to 2014 but at the very least at this point it's probably true that it was more spread out you know cc sabathia was getting a lot of attention yeah i think star is like too vague a term because it's you know that celebrity is always an impossible thing to define but like it was clear the team had bigger players right more important pieces like sabathia and tashera and arod was more of a complementary role now that he was you know, 33 years old, and they had kind of new, you know, shiny newer toys. Um, yeah. But he was still entering only the second year of a 10-year contract. So he was committed to the team for the long term. The question was how he would adapt to not being the center of the lineup. And because of his hip injury, he was away from the team for most of spring training in 2009. And there were all kinds of rumblings from Yankee camp that year about it being a new team and there being new energy. There was a story in the New York Times about how Joe Girardi called off one practice that spring and took the team on a field trip to a local pool hall to help them relax and bond. And there were these photos of everybody like shooting pool together. New signee Mark Teixeira called it probably the most fun I've ever had in spring training my whole career. And while most of the focus was on the new players and Girardi's new leadership style, he'd kind of come off as a little bit of a disciplinarian in 2008. Still, one elephant in the room was A-Rod not being around. It was almost like his absence helped the team breathe a little bit. When the season started, though, the Yankees got off to a so-so start. Just like A-Rod had, the new free agents took a little time adjusting to, the, to New York. 
Sabathia got hit hard in his first start. Teixeira hit just 200 over his first month as a Yankee. And A.J. Burnett had an ERA over 5 in April. When Alex was finally healthy and ready to join the team on May 8th, the Yankees were in the middle of a five-game losing streak that had put them under 500. A-Rod was penciled into the cleanup spot for his first game, and his first at-bat came with two guys on in the first inning when he did this. In the Yankees in both home runs and RBIs, and he takes that one to left field. Montanez going back, and you believe this? Baseball theater. His first at-bat, first pitch. A-Rod delivers a three-RBI homer. First pitch, fastball, inner part of the plate, right on the inside corner of Moore. He cleared out the front side and threw the barrel at it. You can't make this stuff up. Sabathia threw a complete game shutout, his first as a Yankee, and they beat the Orioles 4-0. It would take a while for Rodriguez to get going in earnest, but his arrival in the lineup seemed to spark a turning point for New York. A couple days later, the team began a nine-game win streak, which included a stretch of three consecutive walk-off wins and an overlapping stretch of four consecutive games in which A-Rod homered. The 0-1. And that's why, there it goes! See ya! A walk-off, two-run home run for Alex Rodriguez! And the Yankees win 6-4! By the end of the month, they were in first place, and they would go on to win 103 games the most of any Yankee team since Alex had arrived in New York. But in a change of pace, Alex was not the team's best player. If you go back all the way to 1998, then A-Rod had almost always been the best player, at least according to baseball reference war, on whatever team he was on, the only exceptions being 1999 when he missed 33 games due to injury, and 2006, the dreaded slump season we discussed back in Chapter 5. But in 2009, he wasn't even in the team's top five. That's not to say he had a bad season. He was worth 4.2 wins above replacement, which considering that he missed more than a month due to the hip injury was pretty good. But on this team, he just wasn't as much of a focal point. They had other big free agent signings now. An ace in CC Sabathia, Mark Teixeira, who led the AL in home runs and RBIs, and Derek Jeter was having a career renaissance year. 2009 was one of his best seasons, especially the second half. Not just offensively, although he raised his OPS 100 points from the previous year, but defensively as well. For years, people had been dogging Jeter for his play at shortstop, but in 2009, he rated as a plus fielder, and he finished third in MVP voting, just behind his teammate Teixeira. A-Rod finished all the way down at 10th and missed the All-Star game for the first time in a decade. Still, it was really a charmed year for the Yankees. There was a magic around the team. They had a bunch of walk-off wins. They started the tradition of pieing guys in the face after those wins. Uh, They were just a more fun team than they had been in a long time. Yeah, it was weird, though. Especially as a fan, I was still stuck in the angst of the previous years. I couldn't really get behind the idea that the Yankees had turned a corner. Because it was hard to see what exactly was different. They had gone out and signed a bunch of free agents, but that's what they had been doing the whole decade, and that had led to the malaise we discussed and the problems of the prior years. And yeah, in 2009, now they were relying on some younger players like Robinson Cano and Phil Hughes and Brett Gardner, but it's not like that was like the core of the team. I don't think Brett Gardner was what put them over the top. In retrospect, it's a little hard to see how this team was different from the ones earlier in the decade, except for the fact that the signings before 2009 actually worked out. 
Yeah, but I think that's the right way to think about it because, you know, there had been all this anxiety around free agency earlier in the decade. And we talked about that throughout the series that had caused the money ball trend. It had sort of motivated the Yankees to pivot in 2008 to this failed experiment with a homegrown rotation that completely fell apart. But signing free agents is good. Adding good players is good for your team. You just have to be smart about it. You know, don't fall into the problems that the Yankees did in the middle of the decade, where you sign a bunch of guys in their late 30s, don't ignore the defensive side. And in 2009, the Yankees were smart about it. They added Sabathia, who was only 28 years old. Teixeira wasn't just a slugger like Jason Giambi had been. He could actually play good defense at first base. You know, the problem was never well-paid players, even though being so well-paid had been what made Alex Rodriguez such a target. The real thing was having the right well-paid guys. And in 2009, the team around A-Rod was really good. Yeah, and one illustration of Alex's new role as a supporting piece was that one of his most emblematic streaks was about to be broken. Prior to 2009, he'd had at least 30 home runs and 100 RBIs in every season going back to 1998. 11 straight years. Only Jimmy Fox had done it 12 years in a row, and that streak had ended before the U.S. ended World War II. It was a mark of A-Rod's metronomic production, his consistent excellence, that he had put up numbers like that every year from the Monica Lewinsky scandal through the election of Barack Obama. But now, because of the injury, the streak seemed broken. Going into the final game of the season, Alex had only 28 home runs and 93 RBIs. And the last game didn't really matter. The Yankees had already clinched first place in both the division and the AL, uh, guaranteeing home field advantage and the ability to to rest their starters and make a three-man rotation in the postseason tenable. So A-Rod probably wouldn't even play the whole game. Girardi had been pulling him in the middle of games ever since they clinched to keep him fresh for the playoffs. But in the sixth inning that day, he hit a go-ahead three-run homer to put the Yankees in the lead. It looked like that was going to be his last at-bat of the season. You could see Girardi even shake his hand in the dugout, congratulating him on a great last day. But the Yankees batted around that inning, and Alex came up again with the bases loaded while he was stuck on 29 home runs and 96 RBIs. Alex, you know, is gunning for a grand slam right here. Did he get it? Deep to right. There it goes. Rodriguez, and he has a hundred runs batted in, and the Yankees lead ten to two. Seven RBIs in the sixth inning for Alex Rodriguez. And after that, with the streak secured, he did come out of the game with a flat thirty home runs and hundred RBIs. If there had been any question of how Alex would adapt to this new team, this seemed to answer it. All season long, he seemed looser and more comfortable as if no longer being the center of attention, combined with no longer hiding the secret of his steroid use, had lifted a heavy burden from his shoulder. And that's to say nothing of the learnings of Kabbalah. (laughs) But there was still the question of how he would fare in the playoffs. That last hurdle that had dogged him with the Yankees since 2004. In the first round that year, the Yankees faced off against the Minnesota Twins in the division series. 
You might remember from chapter four that it was against the Twins that Alex had his last great postseason series when he beat them nearly single-handedly in the 2004 division series. So this was perhaps a comforting matchup for Rodriguez. And you might remember from everything else about baseball in the last 20 years that this was a comforting matchup for the Yankees. So then in game one, he had two RBI hits in a game the Yankees won 7-2. His RBI single in the fifth was his first postseason hit with a runner in scoring position in 18 at-bats, a stretch dating all the way back to 2004 in the ALCS. When TBS flashed that graphic on the screen, showing that it was his first such hit since 2004, it seemed like a sign that this was a new Alex. But the real proof would come in the next game. The Yankees' offense was mostly silenced in Game 2 by Nick Blackburn and the Twins' bullpen. Going into the ninth, they had only two hits and trailed 3-1. to one. Minnesota brought in their closer, Joe Nathan, who had a career-high 47 saves that year with a 210 ERA. Nathan gave up a single to Mark Teixeira, and then A-Rod came up as the tying run. Fly ball center field. Well hit. At the track. He's done it again. This new man narrative would recur over and over again that postseason. It was almost too perfect that Alex was shedding his postseason reputation in the first season after he'd been connected to steroids. It was some kind of weird American ego death, whereby suffering the worst kind of reputation-ruining humiliation, he could not only achieve the team success that had always eluded him, but also the personal glory that he had always craved. The Yankees won Game 2 a couple innings later when Teixeira homered in the 11th. Then, in Game 3, Alex hit another game-tying home run, this time in the 7th inning. Jorge Posada homered two batters later to give the Yankees a lead, and they won 4-1, sweeping Minnesota. Overall, A-Rod went 5-for-11 with two home runs and six RBIs. Not only that, but he led the team in win probability added, which measures not just what you do, but how much what you do contributes to the win based on the situation. In other words, nobody could say Alex was just padding his stats. Practically every hit he had in that series was a big one, and he finally got that division series monkey off his back. But it was just three games. That's the thing about these short series. If you're bad, people remember. But if you're good, people can dismiss it as just a small sample size. Plus, it was against the Twins, the same team Rodriguez had dominated in 2004. So a still had some doubters. Could he really keep this up? In the ALCS, the Yankees would face the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, who were 10 games better than the Twins that year and had actually split the regular season series with the Yankees in 2009. So it was set to be a more competitive series. In Game 1, Alex had a sacrifice fly to give the Yankees the lead in the first inning, and then CeCe Zabathia pitched a gem, and the Yankees won 4-1. to Game 2, though, was set to be Alex's first bad game of the postseason. Through a rainy nine innings, he was 0-4, and the Yankees had only scratched across two runs. But so had the Angels, so the game went into extra innings. In the 11th, Los Angeles went up on an RBI single by Sean Figgins, 
Remember him? Uh, and then down three to two in the bottom of the 11th, Alex Rodriguez led off at it. In the air to right, back is Abreu at the wall. That's gone. Game time. It's a home run. Tied at three. He did it again. It was just inches over Abreu's outstretched glove, but it was enough. The next inning, Alice came up again, this time with the game tied and the bases loaded, and he flew out. In a previous era of A-Rod, the team would have lost the game, and that at-bat would be all anyone remembered. But now, in this new, charmed era, the team walked it off the next inning, and Rodriguez is remembered as the hero for yet another game-tying hit. At this point, the Yankees had played five playoff games in 2009, and Alex had a game-tying home run in three of them, twice in the team's potential last at-bat. He homered again in Game 3, but this time the Angels would rally late to win in 11 innings, handing New York its first loss of the playoffs. The Yankees responded with a 10-1 drubbing in Game 4, with Alex homering yet again, his fifth home run in seven games. By this point in the postseason, he was 11 for 27 with four walks, an on-base percentage of 469, and a slugging percentage of 1,000. He'd had at least one hit and at least one RBI in every game so far. He was so hot that in Game 5, Los Angeles intentionally walked him twice, including once in the ninth inning with two outs and nobody on base. Mike Sosha, the Angels' old-school manager, was willing to put the tying run on base rather than give A-Rod another chance to hit a game-tying home run. I, I get so mad about uh, postseason intentional walks, maybe because of the, the Josh Hamilton debacle that would happen uh, the next year with the Yankees against the Texas Rangers. <laughs> yeah, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves here, but yeah. <laughs> but I think it was like teams were terrified of A-Rod that playoffs because he was just such a, on such a roll. He was hitting so well that, you know, the fact that Socio did something like that, even though it was a crazy decision, just just spoke to how well A-Rod was doing. Only in baseball can a player go from unmitigated failure to unstoppable in seven postseason games. That's what Alex Rodriguez has done. He has driven in a run in eight straight postseason games, tying the record held by Lou Gehrig and Ryan Howard. Rodriguez has as many home runs, five, in 29 at-bats in this postseason as he had in his previous 145 at-bats in the postseason. It's been as good as I can remember. What he's been able to do so far in this postseason has been really pretty incredible. I feel like, um, you know, you want to see the ball and, and, and hit it hard, and I try to do too much. But I think the best way I can describe it is you feel like uh, the game is slowing down for you a little bit. He's as good as anybody who's uh, has performed up to this point in any playoff. The record for most home runs in a postseason is eight by Barry Bonds in 2002 and Carlos Beltran in 2004. It is not premature to mention that, not with where it appears the Yankees are headed and not with the way Rodriguez is swinging the bat. In Anaheim, Tim Kirkjian, ESPN. Yeah, I mean... At this point, as a Yankee fan watching this ALCS, I remember feeling like it was some sort of like fever dream and feeling like it was all <laughs> going to come crashing down. Like I, I remember in game three when like 
backup catcher Jeff Mathis walked off for the Angels. Uh, I was like, all right, like this is this is the beginning of the end. It's all going to unravel just like it has the last like several years. Like the Yankees can't get out of this rut in the postseason. And I, you know, the Yankees had like gone to this three man rotation in the playoffs, and I kept waiting for that to like fall apart and those starters uh, to just like run out of gas. And I, I was like, something is is the magic is gonna like unravel here. A Rod was hitting, now he's not getting the opportunities, and and now the Yankees are gonna go cold, just like they always do. They lost to the Angels in the two prior postseason series, but you know, sometimes Mark Teixeira and 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 John, sometimes Johnny Damon stays hot. Sometimes the Yankees actually work out. Sometimes things go well. But anyway, uh, in game six, Alex reached base five times, including three walks. The Angels were so careful with him that they even walked him with the bases loaded, forcing an important insurance run in to make it 3-1 in the fourth. They held on to win 5-2, clinching the series. Alex, of course, was named MVP of the ALCS. Overall in the series, he'd gone 9-for-21 with three home runs, two doubles, six RBIs, and eight walks. Once again, he led the team in every offensive category, plus win probability added. The World Series against the Phillies would not turn out to be as dominant for Rodriguez, but he still had four extra base hits and six RBIs. Uh, More importantly, he had another crucial go-ahead hit in the ninth inning of Game 4. He doubled to put the Yankees up 5-4. to four. Uh, The Yankees would go on to win and uh, earn a commanding 3-1 to one series lead. According to baseball reference, that was the biggest hit of the series, which meant that A-Rod had the biggest hit in all three series the Yankees played en route to their first World Series title in nine years. It was, by virtually any standard, one of the most clutch postseason runs of all time. Another record Alex tied that year was the most times hit by pitch in a single World Series. The Phillies hit him three times over a stretch of six plate appearances in Philadelphia. Man, Mike Sosha should have thought of that. (laughs) (laughs) Which seemed weirdly fitting. The whole season, the whole year really, had been an exercise in humility for Alex. From the post-steroid press conference, to the injury, to the booing, to a new role on the team. He had taken his lumps and he had paid his penance. And now his reward was a World Series title. More than that, people seem to like A-Rod now. We probably shouldn't overstate it, but after the season... Alex went to another BBWAA awards dinner, this time to collect the postseason MVP award, the the Babe Ruth award. When he got up to speak, he joked, what's next, the good guy award? See, Alex having a little bit of a sense of humor, you know, and a kind of landing, like that's rare. (laughs) We had dawned on a new era of A-Rod, seemingly. You finally got it. How does it feel? I am so happy and so blessed and so excited. And we worked so hard and we've waited so long. And I couldn't be more proud of 25 guys, great coaching staff and organization. This is hard to do, and I am so proud to be a part of it. It's even, I would think it's even harder to Jeez. I would think it's even harder to do when that's the only acceptable outcome, given the pressure and the payroll in the city. Well, I mean, I, we've waited a long time. New York's been hungry. And you can just tell how, how loud and how cr- the crowd was so into it. 
New York's hungry for a championship, and we gave it to them, and it feels good. This I'm is crazy. a crazy year for you. We're not going to rehash it, but from the way it started to the way it ended, in your wildest dreams, did you think this was possible within one year? Uh, anything's possible. And, uh, you know, the good Lord blessed us. You know, the Steinbrenner family brought in some unbelievable free agents. And Joe Girardi <laughs> did a phenomenal job leading us to the top. And in some ways, this story was too good to be true. It almost looked like a moral fable, a meteoric rise and early individual success that brings fame and fortune. But then comes hubris and resentment, a seeming emptiness that comes with an inability to win the ultimate prize. That fuels more resentment and eventually leads him to commit baseball's ultimate sin, steroid use. Then comeuppance, contrition, humility, redemption, and then finally, team success. You could see why not only fans, but also the league would be invested in this story. It was that classically American story, a morality tale without any functioning institution to hold someone accountable. Just public humiliation followed by redemption. Yeah, I think it's important to stress that to this point, A-Rod had not actually faced any official punishment for his steroid use. Now, I don't think he should have, both because I don't think we should punish individuals for structural failures and also his failed steroid test was supposed to be anonymous. But it's kind of weird to have a redemption arc for someone who hasn't actually been held accountable. This happens a lot in real life where people think the mere exposure of wrongdoing constitutes a punishment because it's publicly embarrassing and people might make fun of you or boo you. But embarrassment isn't the same as accountability. And I think the part of the reason people got so on board with the A-Rod redemption narrative was that it furthered this idea that baseball could move beyond the steroid issue just by publicly shaming all the exposed steroid users. Yeah, A-Rod was just weirdly popular in 2009. And I think a lot of people really did like the story. It was a neat little fable, an almost perfect story of redemption. But of course, it didn't last long. The first leg of it to fall was the postseason success. Alex had another good year in 2010. Once again, he was no longer the best hitter on the team. Robinson Cano and Curtis Granderson were better, but he was a productive cleanup hitter, putting up 30 home runs and 125 RBIs. His 13th straight season with 30 and 100, setting the all-time record. That year, he became the youngest player ever to hit 600 career home runs. And in the division series, the Yankees once again met the Minnesota Twins. But this time, there were no heroics from Alex. He went 3-for-11 over three games with no extra base hits. But the Yankees won the series easily, so nobody really cared. In the ALCS, though, the Yankees were matched up against the Texas Rangers, the team that had traded Alex to New York back in 2004. A quick word on the Texas Rangers to check in on how things had gone for them after dumping Alex Rodriguez's contract. Texas had improved slightly the first year after shedding A-Rod's salary, but that faded quickly. They were under 500 from 2005 to 2008, falling back to last place in 07. 2010 was their first year in the playoffs since before signing Alex. But by then, the owner, Tom Hicks, the guy who had first wooed A-Rod to Texas, then hosted his wedding rehearsal, and then shipped him out of town to, quote, break even, he was having money troubles of his own, even after shedding the salary. He actually put the team into bankruptcy that season, where they were eventually purchased by an ownership group led by Nolan Ryan. In those proceedings, the team's largest creditor was, 
Alex Rodriguez, who actually had to file an objection to the bankruptcy proceedings to ensure he got the $25 million in deferred salary that he was still owed. Maybe Alex got some ideas about team owners not being able to make payments. Yeah, oh no. This is real bad foreshadowing. But uh, it did show that the this idea that A-Rod was what was holding the Rangers back. He had been the problem in the early aughts. Really was bullshit. So maybe A-Rod had some unfinished business with the Rangers in 2010. In game one of that ALCS, Alex did have a big two-run single in the eighth as the Yankees came back from a 5-1 to one deficit. But then Alex, along with the rest of the Yankee hitters, just went silent. Over the next three games, they scored five total runs on 16 combined hits. Rodriguez specifically went just one for 10 in those games. Yankees were able to rally in game five to send the game back to Texas, but the offense there could only muster a single run, and they were eliminated. Over nine playoff games that year, A-Rod had gone just seven for 32 with no home runs. The hopeful narrative that had set in the previous year that having now confessed his sins, Alex would become a playoff giant. That was punctured. 2009 was starting to look like a one-time thing. Indeed, without spoiling too much, we can say here that Alex would never again have a good postseason series. His playoff numbers would, at the end of his career, stand as a strange black mark on his legacy. His career postseason batting average was 259, nearly 50 points lower than his regular season career average. His slugging percentage was nearly 100 points worse. For people committed to the idea of clutchness, this seemed like empirical proof that A-Rod couldn't do it when it counted outside of a brief fleeting moment in 2009. But again, these numbers are really statistical illusions. The explanation for Alex's postseason numbers is pretty simple. We've alluded several times on this series to the arguably best seasons of A-Rod's career. Those are 1996, 1998, 2000, 2002, 2003, 2005, and 2007. That's seven seasons when he either won the league's MVP award or probably deserved to win it based purely on the statistics he put up. Well, in four of those seven seasons, his team didn't make the playoffs at all. In other words, the reason his career playoff numbers don't match his career regular season numbers is that they don't include most of his best years. In fact, about half of his career postseason plate appearances came after his 2009 hip surgery when he was clearly a diminished player. People were inclined to see Alex's 2010 postseason through the lens they were familiar with, that of a player who couldn't handle the clutch situations. But really, it was a sign of his coming decline. Indeed, the next pillar of Alex's reputation to fall was his regular season production. Up to now, he'd been as reliable a regular season performer as the league had ever seen. 13 straight years of 30 home runs and 100 RBIs, 15 straight years worth more than four wins above replacement, 14 years of MVP votes. And in 2011, he got off to a hot start, so it looked like more of the same. He was slugging over 600 for the first month of the season, and by mid-June, he was slashing 288, 364, 515. He made the All-Star game for the 14th time in his career, but then his power seemed to vanish. He had 10 extra base hits in the first two weeks of June, but only four the rest of the month. More alarming, he started a streak of 96 consecutive at-bats without a home run, the longest such streak of his career. And while this seemed to happen suddenly, it was really the culmination of a trend that had plagued him for a couple of years, actually. In 2010, he had complained about a lack of power before a surge and home runs late in the season. The issue seemed to be with his legs. 
The hip surgery he had in 2009 seemed to suggest some structural issues with his lower body, and in 2011, he had tweaked his knee during a game in Chicago in mid-June, right around the sharp power drop. In July, an MRI revealed a torn meniscus. He needed surgery, which caused him to miss six weeks, and even though he finally homered again in his third game back, by then it was nearly September, and he had only 14 home runs and 53 RBIs. His streak of 30 home run, 100 RBI season was about to end unceremoniously with him falling far short of both totals. His production didn't even recover much at all after he came back from the injury. His batting average and slugging percentage each fell by about 20 points from when he went on the DL. He finished the year with only 16 home runs and 62 RBIs in 99 total games, all career lows since his breakout 1996 season. And honestly, his durability throughout most of his career prior to his hip injuries is an underrated feature of his career. He very infrequently missed a lot of games, but now those days were seemingly over. In the playoffs that year, he was a non-factor, netting only two singles over 18 at-bats as the Yankees lost to the Tigers in the division series. 2011 also saw some off-the-field problems for A-Rod as he was investigated for playing in a couple of illegal poker games. Those are the ones featured in the movie Molly's Game, in case you're curious. Um, Another terrible Aaron Sorkin movie coming up in this series. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I forgot. Yeah, he also did the Moneyball movie, which isn't as bad. Uh, and then also Anthony Galea, a Canadian doctor who had treated Alex during his hip problems in 2009, pled guilty in a case that involved smuggling performance-enhancing drugs, leading to speculation about further drug use. That was also the year Cameron Diaz was famously photographed smuggling some popcorn into Alex's mouth, huh? <laughs> yeah, which also became like a weird little story for a couple of days. There were like people who were accused him of being upset that Fox showed that during uh, the Super Bowl. But it just show, showed that Alex was again kind of being used as fuel for uh, tabloid stories the way he had been prior to the steroid allegations coming out. But the worst thing about the 2011 season was that his health issues never really went away. After the knee surgery in 2011, Alex would struggle with leg and hip injuries for basically the rest of his career. When you review his injury history, it's hard to pinpoint one specific thing. It's not a case like when Don Mattingly hurt his back and basically stopped hitting for power, or Albert Bell, who went from an MVP candidate to out of the league in two years because of a hip condition. With A-Rod, there was no one thing you could point to or sudden dramatic drop in production. It was more that starting with the hip injury in 09, he was just never right, and it led to a slow, steady decline. His slugging percentage had led the league in 2008, but it fell 41 points the next year, then another 26 points the year after that, then 45 more the following year, and then in 2012, it fell another 31 points, such that he was slugging only 430 by that, that season only 19 points above the league average. From 2008 to 2012, he always missed between 24 and 63 games a season. He always seemed to be either recovering from or playing through some sort of injury. In 2012, the Yankees would try to manage him by having him DH for roughly a third of the games. And he was a noticeably better hitter in games when he wasn't playing the field. But by this point in his career, he was not a good enough slugger to be a full-time DH. Even though he played in 23 more games than he had the year before, likely thanks to playing the field less, he still had fewer extra base hits in 2012 than he had in 2011. That would be the first year of his entire career that he didn't either make the All-Star team or get MVP votes. 
And then in July, just a couple of days before his 37th birthday, he was hit in the hand by a pitch from Felix Hernandez, causing him to miss a month of the season. And Alex Rodriguez is hit by a pitch. And this one is a lot more serious than the one that hit Derek Jeter. I believe this one got him in the wrist or hand. And he is in some kind of pain at home plate. A-Rod to his feet now. And they're going to Stevie Donahue is going to check that hand out. And they're going to bring him out of the ball game. They're going to walk Alex Rodriguez back to the Yankee clubhouse. And you can see he's keeping that hand and wrist immobilized for the moment. Gradually, Alex had become a shell of himself. He was once a great power hitter, and now he was struggling to crack 15 home runs. He was once prized for his durability, as James said. In the first seven years of his giant contract, he only missed 16 total games. Now he had missed more than that in each of five straight seasons. But the worst humiliation would come in the 2012 postseason. The Yankees had been in first place most of that season, but nearly blew the division in September. It took winning 14 of their final 18 games to hold off the ascendant Baltimore Orioles. And during that crucial three-week stretch, Rodriguez was only 17 for 68 for a 250 batting average with just a single extra base hit, a double in the last game of the season. Something was clearly wrong going into the playoffs, but it wasn't clear what the Yankees should do about it. Alex's hand had healed. He was theoretically healthy, even though he wasn't hitting like it. In the division series, the Yankees and Orioles met and split the first two games in Baltimore. In Game 3 in New York, the Orioles took a 2-1 lead into the bottom of the ninth, with A-Rod due up. Through that point in the series, Alex was just 1-for-12 with 7 strikeouts. He looked lost at the plate. So Yankee manager Joe Girardi did something unheard of. He pinch hit for A-Rod. Pinch hit for A-Rod. Instead of letting Rodriguez bat, he sent up journeyman hitter Raul Ibanez, who I believe actually did get MVP votes that year. Raul <laughs> Ibanez will pinch hit for Rodriguez here in the ninth. You know, I had a, a sneaky suspicion the DH role, it might come down to this, especially the last couple of bats that Alex had against Jim Johnson, where didn't seem to have a chance on that sinking. Uh, and that's a tough matchup for any righty. Ibanez takes one ball and no strikes. You saw the power numbers. He's got 19 home runs. Last week of the season, he hit a two-run shot to tie a game, which the Yankees won in extra innings. And that ball is driven to right, and we are tied. Three innings later, in the bottom of the 12th, Ibanez homered again for a walk-off win. It was an amazing performance by Ibanez. And the cameras followed Alex the whole time, seemingly inspecting his reaction. And of course, Alex was happy for the win. But it was still an embarrassing moment for him, and a troubling sign of what was to come. The next night, it didn't work out so well. Again, Rodriguez struggled for most of the game, including a huge strikeout in the fourth that ended the Yankees' only real rally. Then in the bottom of the 13th, he was again due up with the team down a run in its last at-bat. And again, Girardi pulled him back for a pinch hitter, this time Eric Chavez. 
totally forgot he was a Yankee, by the way. <laughs> Remember that for Immaculate Grid. But Chavez couldn't capture Ibanez's magic. He lined out to end the game. A-Rod didn't play at all in Game 5, which the Yankees won without him. For some reason, the Yankees kept Alex on the roster for the ALCS, starting him the first two games against Detroit, and then using him as a pinch hitter in Game 4. It was weird. The Yankees had clearly lost faith in A-Rod, but they wouldn't admit he was injured. Girardi just kept sending him out there, while somehow trying to avoid using him in a big spot. He wasn't hitting at all, but neither was anyone else on the team. Derek Jeter broke his ankle in Game 1, and the Yankees were swept easily by the Tigers. The team seemed lifeless after Jeter's injury, mustering only two runs over the final three games. Alex, did you ever expect it to end this way? No, I mean, you never expect that, obviously. It's a terrible way for the season to end, and, you know, obviously we're all very disappointed. What do you think happened here in this series to this ball club? Well, and I think they, they threw the ball really well. They, they outplayed us in every facet of the game, and uh, they were the better team. As you leave today, how, how disappointed are you? What's, what kind of feelings do you have? Oh, you're crushed. I mean, obviously, you work, you know, eight months to get to this point. And, uh, you know, I know there's a lot of teams that would love to be in this position and in the ALCS with an opportunity to go to the World Series. But uh, we just came up short. You know, baseball's not an easy game, you know. It's not an easy game. You wish you could go out and, again, hit 400 and, you know, hit the ball all over the park and hit home runs. But, you know, the one thing that I'm proud of is, uh, you know, just kept coming out, working hard, battling, never gave up. And, and, you know, we win as a team and we lose as a team. Alex, do you think you've played your last game in New York? No, I don't think so. I love New York City and I love everything about being a Yankee. And, you know, the highs are very high and the lows are extremely low. And uh, there's no question the last few weeks was extremely difficult. Uh, it had been three years since Alex's redemptive postseason heroics of 2009, and now he seemed worse in the playoffs than ever. But at least this time there was a reason. A few weeks after being eliminated, a doctor diagnosed A-Rod with a torn labrum in his left hip the same injury he'd had in his right hip in 2009. Why this was not caught earlier would be the subject of much debate and eventually litigation, but the upshot was that Alex would have to have surgery on his hip, causing him to miss much of the 2013 season, the sixth straight year he would miss significant time due to injury. In some ways, Alex's decline had happened in slow motion, five straight years of steadily declining production and injuries. But it still seemed to take people by surprise because he was such a star and off-field celebrity. And because right in the middle of this period, he'd had one of the most charmed Octobers in the history of baseball. If fans had understood in 2009 what they were really watching, the last great moment for one of the most talented people to ever play the game, perhaps he would have appreciated it more. Everyone had been so quick to forgive Alex because for a minute there, his story and his redemption dovetailed neatly with the redemption of baseball. But when those stories diverged, Rodriguez once again became a punchline and a lightning rod, an albatross of a contract another team was desperate to get rid of. Back in 09, we thought what we were watching was a sign of what was to come. The signal of a new man, as if A-Rod could somehow cleanse himself of the sins that had been projected onto him. But in 2013, he was, by baseball standards at least, an old man. And even worse, he was about to lose the last bit of redemption he'd gained in 2009 because he was about to be tied to steroids yet again. All right, so chapter seven brings us through the 2012 season. So to con continue our tallies, 
At this point in his career through 2012, Alex Rodriguez had hit 647 home runs and accrued 115.7 wins above replacement, according to Baseball Reference. A notable stat from this period is between 2009 and 2012, Alex Rodriguez missed 166 games, more than one full season across four years. The A-Rod Chronicles is an undrafted production from us, the Lefty Specialists, written, edited, and produced by the Lefty Specialists. You can see more at undrafted.substack.com. Music by Lonnie Ginsberg. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 